0: Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy to access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page.
1: Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to the Bite Size Bio Web Seminar, which today is sponsored by Leica Microsystems, which develops and manufactures microscopes and scientific instruments for the analysis of microstructures and nanostructures. Widely recognized for optical precision and innovative technology, the company is one of the market leaders in compound and stereo microscopy, digital microscopy, laser confocal laser scanning, and super resolution microscopy with related imaging systems, electron microscopy sample preparation, and surgical microscopy. Today's presentation is titled "Laser Microdissection: Dissection Perfection" and is being presented by Dr. Rafaela Maria Balestrini and by Falk Schwadroff. Raffaella is a senior researcher at the National Research Council of Italy's Institute for Sustainable Plant Protection, unit manager for the Turin unit, and she has a PhD in biology and biotechnology of fungi, and her degree laurea is in biological sciences. Her research focuses mainly on different aspects of plant-symbiotic-fungi interactions. She's responsible for a UR2 in a national research program and a WP3 in a regional project. She is a member of the Editorial Board of Biology and Fertility of Soils, the Review Editorial Board of Frontiers in Systems Microbiology and Plant-Biotic Interactions, and she's the academic editor for PLUS One. In addition to all this, she's also a referee for scientific projects. In 2007, she authored a paper on the laser microdissection application of a bruscular mycorrhizal symbiosis that was selected for the Faculty 1000 evaluation. Falk was born in Lundberg, Germany. After his master's in molecular life science at the University of Lubbock, where he was in the also involved in the undergraduate studies of computer science, he moved to Marburg, where he went to the Phillips University of Marburg, Germany, and later to Ulm, the University of Ulm in Germany, where he worked on and finished his PhD thesis on Parkinson's disease at the laboratory of Professor Birgit Lies. Afterwards, he worked as a scientist- on R&D for Kaiden and in Germany, before he started Leica Microsystems as product manager in May 2011. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Raphael and Falk at the end. So now, over to you, Raphael and Falk, for the presentation.
2: Today, I would like uh, to talk uh, about uh, the application of laser microdissection technology to explore cell specificity in plant interactions, mainly focusing on some of the results uh, that uh, we have obtained since the arrival of the laser microdissection system in our laboratory 10 years uh, ago. Laser microdissection may be represented the most powerful tool for uh, isolating populations of specific cell types, and uh, differently from other methods, laser microdissection does not rely on the availability of specific markers. DNA, RNA, proteins, and even metabolites, metabolites can be extracted from collected cells leading to cell type specific profiles of different molecules. An important step in characterizing the function of a gene, for example, is the identification of the cells in which this gene is expressed. As you can see in this recent review published on Plant Methods, several experimental approaches can be used to this aim, and among them, the laser microsection technology. An important for studies using laser microdissection is the ability to obtain good histological tissue sections. The aim is to preserve enough visual details to identify specific cells for harvest, yet allow the maximum subsequent recovery of RNA, DNA, proteins, or metabolites from the harvested cells. With the widespread use of this technology, significant progress have, has been made in the application of plant tissues and the protocols have been developed for the use with several plant species. As uh, we will see during this uh, webinar, laser microdissection can be considered a powerful tool also to study plant interactions, such as, uh, for example, plant nematode or plant fungi interactions. Both in pathogenic or symbiotic interactions, the responses can be in fact localized in specific cell types or microbial structures. By using this technique, cells associated to particular infection stages can be visualized under the microscope, harvested, and investigated. Therefore, verification of the response of the plant during the progression of the colonization can be performed in different cell types. It is clear how, um, in the case of transcript and protein profiling, this approach can overcome the limitation of methods that use whole organs which can mask cell type specific differences in RNA or uh, protein levels. Since the first uh, studies focused on uh, uh, plant nematode interactions, so these technologies uh, have been applied to study the responses at the, se- at the cell level, both in pathogenic and symbiotic plant microbe interactions, mainly in combination with gene expression or transcriptome analysis. During the last years, we have used laser microdissection to study cell specificity in arbuscular mycorrhizae. Arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, very briefly, are a uh, very widespread f- forming symbiotic associations with almost all crop plants and they are considered of great interest for their use as biofertilizer in low-input agriculture. The symbiotic nature of the interaction between plant roots and arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi is based on nutritional exchanges where the fungus supply the plant with mineral nutrients and water, while in turn it receives the carbon compounds derived from the photosynthetic process. In addition, symbiosis can improve plant tolerance against biotic and abiotic stresses. The exploitation of these plant beneficial symbionts in other environments, requires the knowledge of the events that lead to the establishment of a functional symbiosis, including, for example, the mechanism involved in nutrient transfer. The fungus colonized the root by producing inter- and intracellular hyphen. When the fungus colonized the uh, inner cortical layers, it forms complex ramified structures, called arbuscules, which are thought to be the site where the measure of nutrient exchanges occur. When the fungus penetrates the host cells, each fungal branch is surrounded by a membrane of host origin. As you can see in This scheme, invagination of the host membrane around the intracellular fungus, creates a new interface compartment at the contact area between plant and fungal cell surface. It has been already demonstrated that the several stages of the colonization process are associated to remarkable changes in gene expression. However, whole root expression profiling is complicated by the presence in the mycorrhizal roots of the multiple, multiply cell types that are involved in the interaction. In a fully differentiated mycorrhizal roots, in fact, various cell types are present. These cells include colonized epidermal and cortical cells, and among them, non-colonized cells. After the first occurrence of arbuscules, which are considered the key structure of the symbiosis, all developmental stages um, of the symbiosis are present in the root system. This is due to the fact that in a fully developed uh, symbiosis, the colonization is asynchronous. The use of whole organs containing a mixture of different cell types and stages of arbuscule development could mask cell type specific differences in RNA or protein levels. To overcome this problem, laser microdissection has been used over the last few years to study cell specificity in arbuscular mycorrhizae and in particular, attention has been uh, focused to the cortical cells containing the main feature of the symbiosis, the arbuscules. As a first step, we have developed a protocol for cell-type specific gene expression profiles on mycorrhizal roots from the biological material preparation to gene expression analysis. Very briefly, mycorrhizal and non-mycorrhizal roots are cut in small pieces and placed in uh, RNAs-free tubes containing freshly prepared fixative. Currently, we are uh, are, uh, using a farmer's fixative that contains absolute ethanol and acetic acid 3 to 1. After a step under vacuum at room temperature for about 20 minutes, this step is uh, an optional step, the fixative solution is changed and the root samples are incubated overnight at 4 degrees. After the dehydration and infiltration steps, root samples are embedded in paraffin in petri dishes and stored at 4 degrees until the cutting of the sections. Sections from the paraffin-embedded material are placed on a slide with membrane and dried. Targeted cells are isolated from the, the paraffinized sections using a laser microdissection system, which is computer assisted. The region of interest is selected, and then a an UV laser cuts the selected region and dissected cells falls in the top of a tube. We collect, uh, collected the cells cut each day in a, a tube and we added the extraction buffer before to store them at minus 80 degrees. Once we have reached the number of cells needed for the molecular analysis, we pulled them and proceeded with the extraction using a specific kit for low qu- quantity of starting material and the RT-PCR one step reactions are performed on the RNA extracted from the homogeneous cell type populations since uh, phosphate transfer is a key benefit for the plants uh, in the arbuscular mycorrhizal symbiosis, in the first work uh, devoted to set up a protocol to apply this technology to gene expression studies uh, during the symbiosis, we focus on phosphate transporter genes from the plant side, giving attention to tomato uh, for which there was already a good amount of information about the spatial distribution of transcripts. We get RNA from three population of cell types: uh, cortical cells from non mycorrhizal roots without the fungus, the fungus, non-colonized cortical cells from mycorrhizal roots, and arbuscule-containing cells. Gene expression results show uh, results show that transcripts for PT three uh, four. And 5 were detected almost only in Argus-core containing cells, confirming literature data. We can add some news concerning PT1 and 2, as we could detect the corresponding transcripts also in cortical cells, while they were described as associated to epidermal cells. These experiments clearly demonstrate that argusculated cells are really very efficient in the uptake of phosphate since they are able to recruit all the set of PT genes. And we had also the demonstration that the experimental approach was actually working. Of course, we then looked at the fungal transcripts here. And on the same material, ribosomal primers specific for the used fungal species were used. We got a band from arbuscle containing cells and a weaker signal also from not colonized cortical cells. This might indicate that the fungal structure are also present, alpha, not evident in this section. But uh, most importantly, we found the fungal PT transcripts inside the root and in particular in arbuscules. In the same cell type population, we found also mRNA for a proton pump, which may be important to create the proton gradient needed for phosphate, but also for the uptake of other nutrients. The contemporaneously pre- presence of plant and fungus pg transcripts in arbusculated cells suggest that the efflux of phosphate is occurring in competition with its uptake, and that the fungus may exert control over the amount of phosphate delivered to the plant. In addition, we have demonstrated for the first time that the last microdissection can be considered. A powerful tool to scale down the investigation from the highly heterogeneous composition of an arbuscular mycorrhizal tissues to the cell level. Then, a microarray experiment on highly arbusculated roots of Lotus iaponicus colonized by the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungus Gigaspora margarita aimed at the identification of genes that govern the development and functioning of the arbuscular mycorrhizal symbiosis has allowed to identify many regulated genes which code for proteins involved in several biological processes. Convincingly demonstrated how our muscular mycorrhizal fungi impact mi- mineral plant nutrition, changing the expression of a huge number of nutrient transporters. The regulation of several genes have has been confirmed by quantitative RT-PCR, and the laser microdissection has been used with the aim to identify new markers for the ArgoSchool development and functioning. Here you can see the presence uh, of a band in all three cell type populations using housekeeping primers. While we have observed the presence of the specific transcripts, including several nutrient transporters only in arbusculated cells. Among them, putative PT4, homolog uh, to the uh, medicago truncatula PT4-phosphate transporter, which is, uh, has been shown to be mycorrhiza-specific and this essential for the functioning of the symbiosis. In addition, a putative ammonium transporter resulted to be the strongest regulated gene in our array experiment. This transporter has been characterized and quantitative gene expression analysis showed that it is specifically expressed here in mycorrhizal uh, roots. In addition, semi-quantitative TPCR on... uh, RNA extracted from microdissected cells showed that transcripts are more abundant in argusculated cells. Alpha auto the signal is also evident from neighbor cortical cells. We have then localized the expression of two fungal ammonium transporters, and also in this case, transcripts have been localized in arguscules by your assay suggesting that both transporters are active in the arbuscular interface and that the fungus may exert control over the amount of nutrients delivered to the host, such as for the phosphate. We have uh, then decided to try to set up a protocol to perform quantitative RT-PCR on the RNA extracted from the dissected cells. And following the same approach used in the previous works, we have used a one-step protocol for quantitative RT-PCR. In particular, we have verified the expression of an aquaporin gene whose transcripts were found in all the three different cell type populations by using RT-PCR. As you can see, higher expression of this gene in argus pool containing cells have been observed. We can conclude that the application of laser microsection technology has allowed the identification of new functional markers associated to argus pool containing cells. Among them, several transporter genes, suggesting that functions like nutrient exchanges are cell specific. And we could have an experimental confirmation that arbusculated cells are the core of arbuscular mycorrhizal root functioning. Since the first work on the application of this technology on arbuscular mycorrhizal symbiosis, several papers have been published on different mycorrhizal associations, mirroring the great interest to use this technique to dissect the complexity present in the mycorrhizal root. Generally, paraffin sections have been used in these uh, studies. although different fixation and embedding protocols have been developed mainly with the aim to improve the quality of the extracted uh, RNA. Most uh, of this uh, paper focused to track a limited number of genes in arvoscool-containing cells, employing RNA derived from hom- homogeneous cell populations, uh, and in several cases, RNA has been subjected to an amplification step before the gene expression analysis. However, laser microdissection has been also used in combination with larger scale transcriptome uh, analysis in order to investigate the cell type specific transcriptome reprogramming of root cells during arbuscular mycorrhizal development. Differently from the other works, these authors have used frozen sections. And using the same material, the same authors have also performed a proteomic analysis on microdissected cells. I only would to remark that working with proteins is more complicated due to the fact that that it's not possible to amplify them. As I have cited before, more recently, laser microdissection has been also used to, to verify the specificity in transcriptome profiles from other mycorrhizal systems. As an example, here the authors have applied a successfully, successfully uh, laser microdissection to verify transcriptome profiles in the two fungal compartments present in an ectomycorrhiza: the mantle, which represents the interface with the soil, here, and uh, the Arctic net which corresponds to the fungal plant interface. Results lower the identification of the distinct genetic programs associated with each compartment. However, this technology has been also applied on studies on plant pathogenic interactions in combination with both targeted approaches using quantitative RT-PCR and the larger scale analysis such as Uh, cDNA microarrays developed both for plant and uh, fungal pathogen. Lastly, I would like to end propo- proposing a different application. In this case, we have used the camellia roots inoculated with a natural substrate, and we have applied laser microdissection to identify among those present in the substrate the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, which form arbuscules inside the camellia roots, through a PCR analysis on DNA extracted from the cells containing the fungal structures. Results highlighted the differences between the symbiotic, active, muscular mycorrhizal fungal community inside the root and the community present in soil. In conclusion, the results of the confirmed that laser microdissection can be actually considered a powerful tool to dissect the complex environment which is created which is created during the plant interactions uh, with other organisms, allowing to obtain more precise knowledge on the same type populations involved in the interactions. Here, uh, where the laser micro is located and the people involved in the researches that I have presented. Finally, I would like to introduce my colleague uh, Falk.
3: Thank you, Raffaella, for handing over. So my name is Falk Schnaudraff. I'm currently the product manager for the Leica laser macular Section systems and I will present you today the topic or the final talk of my PhD thesis, which was achieved by the use of these nice machines. So the overall topic is gene expression analysis in Parkinson's disease. And in more detail, I have done a lot of quantitative gene expression analysis of individual human dopaminergic neurons from postmortem midbrain tissue. I will give you some more details about that. Just to my person, so this thesis was published, let's say, in 2010, and I've modified it a bit for this nice webinar today. And it was applied in the Institute for General Physiology in the University of Ulm, which is now headed by Professor Liz um, as the Institute for Applied Physiology. My talk is um, split into, let's say, an introduction, a material and methods part, um, some results, and of course I will summarize my results. I will introduce to you first dopamine, which is, let's say, the most important Neuronal sensor for Parkinson's disease. Then I will spend some words on the basal ganglia. Then I will introduce you briefly what Parkinson's disease is in phenotype and genotype. And I will spend some words on the genes I have been investigating and why these were chosen for the investigation. Then I will focus a lot on material and methods because this is really crucial to have valid results at the end, especially if you use human midbrain tissue or human tissue in general. Afterwards, I will um, outline my general approach, how to do the gene expression analysis here. And then I will spend some words on the RNA ring number, which is um, something good to show that you have a good quality and a good RNA uh, integrity. Then I will show you a basis for human postmortem RNA analysis. And as a result, I will so- show you some comparisons of single cell resolution against uh, or let's say, uh, in contrast to tissue analysis, if you use the whole tissue, then I will spend some words on dopamine-associated genes, on selected park genes, which are called, can cause Parkinson's disease, and a small set of activity-regulating ion channels. And at the end, I will summarize. So let's start here. So what you can see here is um, a human midbrain, and in the human midbrain you have in this area two populations of dopaminergic neurons. One is a so-called substantia nitra region, which is projecting into the striatum. And the neighboring region is a ventral tegmental area, so the VTA. And this is all, these are also dopamine-producing cells, but the projection side is different. So these are projecting into the limbic system and to the frontal lobe. Dopaminergic neurons produce dopamine, and what you can see here is the dopamine synthesis. So we start with the amino acid L-tyrosine, and this is converted by the key enzyme tyrosine hydroxylase into l dopa and l dopa later on is converted to dopamine. The substantia nigra dopaminergic neurons are involved in Parkinson's disease, while if um, degeneration happens to the VTA area, um, there are different diseases like addiction, schizophrenia, attention, deficiency, hyperactive syndrome, um, and so on. We will focus today on Parkinson's disease. Here you can see some microscopic images of dopaminergic neurons which are are here from the Substantia nigra. Um, One is from a Parkinson's disease case and the other one from a control case and as you will see later on, you cannot really see on the individual cell level the difference. Coming to the bazaar ganglia. So the bazaar ganglia, say they have a so-called um, are, uh, output core. So the motor cortex is doing our movement. You might all know that Parkinson's disease has something to do with a strange move, walking and so on, and the tremor. And what we have here is we have another projection side from the cortex to the striatum. And in the striatum we have some medium spiny neurons which are exposing D2, so dopamine receptors of the type D2 or dopamine receptors of the type D1. Dopamine is produced intrinsically in the Substantia Nigra, as we have just learned, and these neurons are projecting into the striatum, and if they spill out the dopamine here, they can either activate the D1 type um, neurons or deactivate or silence the D2 presenting neurons. Now we have also an output core of the basal ganglia which has a direct effect or input to the or indirect input to the motor cortex again and um, in a normal individuum, this is all in balance. so from the striatum, we have a direct input which is let's say blocking or silencing the output core. So if we have a lot of dopamine here, this one is activated and we have um, a stronger block and on the other way it's a bit more complicated but simply keep in mind here we have a positive input which is more activating but this one can be blocked by dopamine if he has a lot of dopamine and this way we are let's say in balance and this is what a normal human being would expose and then everything is okay like in this control case. And remember that all my studies are only on the neurons which are living or habited here in the substantia nigra. And this is um, how they look like before and after the laser microdissection process. So I've worked on individual neurons. I will come to this later. Now let's have the other case. In case of Parkinson's disease, you might have heard already that a lot of these dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra are gone. That means that we have Uh, only a few um, cells left who are spitting dopamine here. And this brings a kind of a misbalance into the system that we have a huge positive impact here on the output call, which is blocking the thalamus and um, thus we do not have um, so much input here anymore in the motor cortex. And this, let's say, is um, what happens when you have Parkinson's disease. So more than 70% of your dopaminergic neurons of the substantia nigra are gone. And this is why you behave, um, or a Parkinson's disease patient behaves like he behaves, that he has this strange walking and uh, rigidity and the tremors and so on. And also here I have collected the dopaminergic neurons from the substantia nigra, past compacta, to compare the gene expression. Now coming to the genes I've been investigating, so what you can see here um, on top is um, a time scale um, prior the birth, let's say. So E stands for embryonic days um, and uh, here later on you you can see the adult one and we have some, this is a German word, sorry for that, um, some genes um, which I've been investigating which are crucial for the specification so that some of the um, progenitor cells become to a dopaminergic neurons and also some for the um, terminal differentiation and as well as to the maintaining them to stay a dopaminergic neuron. The first one here is NUR1 and the second one from the specification genes is PIDIC3 and from um, these genes there was a study published in science, so a very high published study from Kim et al in 2007 which predicted um, a kind of a feed with a microRNA between PITX3 and this microRNA133b. And they concluded that this microRNA133b is crucial for Parkinson's disease with their experiments. And this was very exciting to me, so I choose these genes NUR1 and PITX3 also for my studies and I also included microRNA133b to my studies which was a bit more complicated because here I needed to provide a good protocol that I can have a deep look to genes as well as to microRNAs after laser microdissection of single cells. Here this is just a reminder what microRNAs are doing so they can regulate the gene expression after the transcription of the DNA into RNA. So they are directly affecting the RNA and then they can um, do different things here. In addition we have for the um, terminal differentiation and the maintaining of the dopaminergic neurons D2. So the D2 receptor we already Saw also in the striatum, but this is also a D2 autoreceptor exposed on dopaminergic neurons. And I also took a look to the tyrosine hydroxylase, the key enzyme to produce dopamine, and also DAT and the VMAT. And to DAT and VMAT, I will come with this slide because this is much easier to understand. So, what you can see here, this, let's say, is an end of a dopaminergic neuron of the protection side from the striatum, ending here in the striatum. And here you have the synaptic cleft. And in this dopaminergic neuron, we can convert tyrosine via the tyrosine hydroxylase to dopamine. Dopamine itself is a bit toxic to the cell. So the cell has some vesicular monoamine transporters to pack the dopamine into vesicles. And then these vesicles can be used to spill the dopamine into the synaptic cleft. And then they can bind either to the D2 receptors to deactivate or to the D1 receptor types to activate the next neuron and um, they can also bind to their own D2 receptors to let's say um, have a feedback loop to the dopaminergic neuron that already a lot of dopamine is spilled out and maybe it can silence a bit. And again, please remember I have been not investigating this triatum, only um, the dopaminergic neurons here in the substantia nigra. Tyrosine hydroxylase, I already explained, as well as the, R. Um, I ah, I forgot, DAT. So DAT is a dopamine transporter. So after the dopamine is in the synaptic cleft, it can be transported back into the cell and repacked into vesicles via the dopamine transporter DAT into the cell. And again, this remet is a vesicular monoamine transporter into the vesicles. Then some other genes I've been investigating were the so-called PARC genes. You might have heard of the PARC genes. So for some of the Parkinson's disease cases in the world, we already know that this is related to DNA mutations. And one of the most prominent ones here is alpha-synuclein. Many studies have been applied to alpha to investigate alpha-synuclein and how it behaves in Parkinson's disease. And one um, uh, of the latest ones, which were discovered causing Parkinson's disease disease is lag 2 And I will only, so we have done also studies on all the rest of these um, uh, proteins or uh, the RNAs behind these proteins, but I will concentrate here on alpha-synuclein and lag 2 Alpha-synuclein um, can be gene doses variants or also um, uh, part one and part four, and they both lead to dominant familiar Parkinson forms uh, disease forms. Lac 2 is also a dominant uh, mutation, so if you have um, these, if you are unlucky and you have these mutations, you have a very high probability to suffer from Parkinson's disease after a certain age. So, and of course, my former boss, professor Liz, she is very um, in doing very good in doing electrophysiology, and she likes ion channels, so I of course had also to investigate some ion channels of the dopaminergic neurons, and I have simply separated the ion channels I will show you later on um, the RNA results behind these ion channels into. Activating channels, which are marked all in green, so this is HC, uh, HCN2, CAF1.3, and the NMDRR receptor. And these three receptors do all the same. So if these are active, they are making the neuron more active. That means you can see a very strong pacemaker. So if you do electrophysiology experiments, which I cannot explain to you, um, you can see a lot of uh, frequencies here and also these burst activities. um, This is where these ion channels are involved. And on the other hand, we have some like the um, KV 4.3, GERP 2, so D2 we already, um, learned this is a dopamine receptor and this is connected to GERP2, and this is how it can silence the cell. And also um, KEL 6.2 and SO1 forming the KATP channel. These are all for. Um, or these are all acting more inhibitory to the cells. So they can really silence the cell that the frequency is much less compared to the activity promoting ones. And they can also cause the neuron to be complete silence. that they have no activity at all. This is what you usually do in a uh, Um, in an electrophysiology experiment to find out if this is really a dopaminergic neuron. You simply give it or expose it to some dopamine and then you will see that the activity gets lost because of the D2 receptor and group 2 which is exposed uh, usually in dopaminergic neurons. So these are the genes I've been investigating, but um, there were several issues in my way to do that. So what you can see here, I've stolen this from a nice website which is um, uh, shown here. In a human being, yeah, the substantia nigra is really in the middle of the brain like this and you can easily um, distinguish between a control patient and a Morbus Parkinson patient. Because in Morbus Parkinson, 70% of the dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra. Substantia nigra is a black substance, let's say, is, um, are lost. And you can see this is much, much lighter compared to the controls. And indeed, I was able to see the same effect in the controls. We had a rather dark Substantia nigra compared to the Substantia nigra of Parkinson's disease patients, which was much lighter. So these are the brain uh, sections I got from the a German brain net which was really, really good that um, Professor Liszt was able to get these um, tissues because it is not easy in Germany to get um, age matched and um, gender matched and so on and controls which are made by a special protocol of a pathologist that they have all the same cutting surface let's say and we were very lucky to Um, had so many cases and of course we did some controls, um, that we had almost, um, yeah, let's say the same. Conditional conditions for the controls and the Parkinson's disease cases. And we had remaining eight controls and five Parkinson's disease cases. What you can see here is a part of a specimen overview of the substantia nigra of a control and of a Parkinson's disease patient. All these little black dots you can see here are individual dopaminergic neurons. And as you can see here in the control case, you have many more of those. But on the single-cell morphology, there is absolutely no difference between a control and a dopaminergic um, neuron from a Parkinson's disease patient. So, um, Professor Lis and also myself later on, we invented a very good protocol to do serious quantitative real-time experiments after laser microdissection from these brain sections, these human brain sections. So, the human brain sections were stored at minus 80 degrees. Um, to keep them, um, th- these were native, not fixed, so native tissue sections stored in, at minus 80 degrees and then we always did an RNA integrity test. So we took a look how good the RNA integrity was and we only took the ones which had an integrity of 6 or higher, the ring of 6 or higher. These were then used and um, cutted in a cryostat at minus 20 degrees and put at room temperature on top of a, usually a pen membrane, and we were able then to use them directly for UV laser microdissection. But because the sections of human um, uh, material, are, you cannot get them back. So we were very interested to keep them for further experiments. And we simply used a falcon tube, a 50 milliliter falcon tube, with um, some silica gel in the colos and a sieve in between, or a silica bag, and we put the slides into these um, falcon tubes and we were able to store them again at minus 80 degree and to thaw them for 15 minutes at minus 20, 15 minutes in the fridge, and again 15 minutes next to, uh, at room temperature next to the LMD system and that way we were able to use them over and over again for several uh, laser marker section experiments without any loss of the quality of the material. So a very strong and good protocol for human material. Then we had a special um, mixture, which we call laser mix, um, which was able to digest and lyse the cells we have collected in the tube cap with the laser microdissection system. And um, afterwards we directly did the reverse transcription in the tube caps overnight to get all the mRNA, which was inside um, our uh, cells, into cDNA, which is a bit more stable. And then we used these cDNAs for quantitative qPCR experiments. This is how it looks like with these um, uh, famous curves. And then I converted these data with a standard into several dots. And these dots are then later simply um, summarized into, uh, into these uh, histograms or bar graphs to get a clear view if they are st- uh, statistically significant different or not. And this protocol was not only good to conserve the tissue of the human, um, brain sections for several experiments. It is also very, very good procedure and described in the protocol um, which maintains the RNA quality. So we got feedback from one of the editors uh, when we tried to publish that he didn't believe that the RNA integrity of the beginning of the cryo section here is the same um, as uh, after all the processing, this fixation and staining and laser microdissection and so on. And that way we simply tested this with a mouse brain where we collected um, every second section on a slide and um, applied our whole procedure. And uh, every first section, so the the odd ones were collected into liquid nitrogen. And we then compared after the whole process with the native ones, the RNA integrity, and there was no difference. This is something you can find on the NACA science lab. The RNA integrity, just to remind you how this works, so it's basically, um, it's a system from Agilent and you have here um, uh, a small chip, a glass chip, let's say, which makes um, nothing more than a capillary electrophoresis of your individual spots you are loading here. And then you get a kind of a gel view and also this electropherrogram, And you also get a RIN number and a RIN of 10, like this example, makes it. Perfect quality and a RIN of one uh, means for you it's completely degraded, do not use it. The truth for human material is usually somewhere in between. Why am I telling this to you? Because it is very, very important. Um, we already discovered that there is a kind of a threshold of assay length you can use. So what you can see here on the left side is a uh, Um, human tissue with a RIN of 8.8, so very, very high quality. And here we use two different assays spanning the same intron-intron gap, um, both for the neuronal enolase ENO2, one with a length of 108 base pairs of the amplicon, and the other assay with a length of 77 base pairs. And you can see with a good quality both assays perform well, and the results are comparable. But if you use already a partly degraded RNA with a RIN of 6.1, which is really a good RIN for human material, especially for brain sections, you can see that um, already here, the assay with one with more than 100 um, base pairs um, is not comparable anymore to the same one, which is um, some smaller. But you can still compare the smaller one from the partly degraded RNA with RIN 6.1 to the one with RIN 8.8. And this was crucial for our experiments because when we did the RIN measurements for our tissue sections from the German brain net, we found out that the controls are significantly less of um, RNA quality compared to the partenose disease cases. So I had here um, Really a problem because the RNA integrity of my tissue sections from the human postmortem um, material was significantly different. And thus I had to be creative to find a way to get um, a good protocol, which is valid also for starting material which has significantly different RIN values and what I did is I simply took some RNA of very very high quality which was completely undegraded and um, I take some of this and store it as minus 80 degree and the rest I put on a heater by 70 degrees Celsius for 30 minutes and afterwards I extracted again some of the material and put it to the freezer then I left it for additional 15 minutes and again I extracted something and then I left it and there was in total 72 minutes um, at 70 degrees and that way I achieved from the same starting RNA different qualities. So one with 9.9, another one with 7.4, another one with 6.8 and another one with 5.9. And this was very good because this is really um, spreading the whole uh, RIN values which I had from my human samples and I used this to um, apply my standard protocol to get some cDNA which I can use for usual messenger RNA investigations and what you found out here is that when we take assays which have an assay length shorter than 80 base pairs this was for whatever reason the magical border um, I get really stable results which I can really compare between all these different RIN states. And then I invented another protocol where I used our standard protocol. I will come to this later. It's published. Um, I mixed it up with the ME script protocol from Chiagene. And um, this this way, I were able to get a material which I can use for messenger RNA as well as for microRNA quantification. And here it was the same. Everything of a Techman essay with a length of less than 80 base pairs was comparable. And these were my base for reproducible and valid analysis of messenger RNAs and microRNA levels with different starting quality, which you cannot change because this is human material and here you really have to work with what you get. Then the main interesting thing for me was again this science paper from 2007 from Kim et al. And they showed that they had a significant higher expressed microRNA133b in the controls compared to Parkinson's disease. So what I did here, because this was applied on tissue, and remember tissue from the substantia nigra is 100% dopaminergic neurons compared to 20, 30 something percent um, in the tissue, so you are comparing here Apples with bananas. But however, I did the same, so I took some of the tissue of substantia nigra and repeated this experiment to investigate the microRNA expression, and da-da, I was able to reproduce the science paper. Great. Then we found some results that Nur and PIDX3 seemed to be unchanged, so I repeated this experiment as well on the tissue level, and the result was unchanged. Then we found some, um, in the the backup material here, some results on the tyrosine hydroxylase and the dopamine transporter DAT. And, da-da, on the uh, the tissue level, I was in trouble. Because Kim and Al postulated that in the controls, the tyrosine hydroxylase and the dopamine transporter DAT, are significantly higher expressed compared to the papillose disease cases. Which was not the case with my samples. So I was thinking a lot, so what I might have been doing wrong, but then I reminded myself, oh, I have been comparing bananas with apples. And maybe my results are simply um, different because I had some different apples and different bananas. However, I think the much... A smarter approach to investigate the expression levels of the dopaminergic neurons is to really use dopaminergic neurons and that way I had access to the Leica LMD system in the lab. So I used my sections and applied laser microdissection, and I compared on the single cell level again the microRNA133b which was not significantly changed. I did the same for NUR and PIDIC3 which were both as well not significantly changed. Now I had to explain to my boss why I think that these single cell results are valid um, even if they are not reflecting what was published in a science paper. And my explanation for this is that the microRNA133b and NO1 and PINX3 have something to do with the development in the embryonic stage. And if these are really the or causing Parkinson's disease, I would expect that you will have Parkinson's disease right away from the beginning after your birth, which is not the case because Parkinson's disease is usually a disease you get when you're getting older. Then I did the same experiments for uh, on the single cell level for the tyrosine hydroxylase, the dopamine transporter, DAT, and we met, so the dopamine maintaining um, messenger RNAs, and here I was on the single cell level always able to see a much higher expressed Um, uh, levels in the Parkinson's disease cases compared to the uh, controls. And the reason for this is, from my point of view, a compensation effect. So, the dopaminergic neurons realize that they have to produce more dopamine to cover the loss of the 70% of cells which were in the neighborhood. And that way they produce more dopamine using the tyrosine hydroxylase. They have more vesicular amine transporters and more dopamine transporters to get more dopamine back into the cell and packed into the vesicles. It's my assumption or my conclusion of these results. Coming to the PARC genes, so we have investigated alpha-synuclein, and for alpha-synuclein, we expected that it should be higher in Parkinson's disease because this is also what we see from the change when you have the mutation inside here that is really um, a gain or promoting the levels of protein as well. So we have more messenger RNA. This was expected, while many, many studies which have been applied on tissues, on the tissue level, Um, had different results, like it's um, lower expressed, higher expressed, lower, lower, not changed at all, and so on. But this was, again, comparing apples with bananas in the tissue or on the tissue level. So on the single cell level, you get a much clearer picture, which um, also mirrors what you expect from the um, DNA behind. Then we did the, um, a similar experiment with LARC 2 and in lac 2 we didn't find any significant change. So why that now? And I think this comes from, so larc 2 is also a dominant um, mutation, but this mutation is affecting the activity of the protein. So there's a kind of a, of a door which can block the, um, the activity spot of the protein, and if you have the mutation, this door is locked and always open. So you have again a gain-of-function mutation here, and this is completely independent of the um, messenger RNA level behind. So this is really protein, um, what is uh, changed here. So this is okay if you do not see here anything changed on the messenger RNA level. Last but not least, the investigation of the ion channels. So I investigated all these um, activity enhancing ion channels. And as you can see here, I didn't found any significant change of the activity enhancing um, ion channels mRNAs. But for the activity silencing channels or the more inhibitory ion channels, any messenger RNA coding for the subunits or for the channels um, themselves have been higher expressed in the Parkinson's disease patients compared to the controls. And my explanation for this one is if we think back to the ganglia, what happens in Parkinson's disease is we get here um, positive feedback from the activity um, or the, the indirect port. And that um, is telling the dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra, hello, we do not have enough dopamine is the atom. Hello, we need more dopamine. Please produce more dopamine. And this is also what I already explained for TH, DAT, and VMET, a kind of compensatory effect. So they really produce more dopamine. But on the other hand, they also, uh, the ion channels try to protect the cells from dying by hyper excitability. So if they would produce all the time, spill out all the time, work all the time, work all the time, run all the time, they will die one day simply by hyper-excitability. And from my point of view, these ion channels are changed to really lower the activity of the cells, to tell them, okay, calm down, do not be so active all the time, because then you will die. Yes, you have to compensate, but calm down, and so on. So this is my explanation for these results here on the single cell level. To summarize, Presented you a basic technique for gene expression analysis of human postmortem material after UV laser microdissection, and um, this is very very crucial because from human postmortem material you have to work with what you get. So you cannot simply go out and um, collect another human to get better results. This is impossible, and um, so I found here really a method which is valid even if you have different RNA qualities from the very beginning. And then I was also able to show you that there is a crucial need for single cell resolution in some diseases or in heterogeneous tissues, like in Parkinson's disease. Because if you would compare only tissue with tissue, you will be comparing apples with bananas and you will get um, complete um, mixed up results. Because you are starting with heterogeneous material. And you should always start with homogeneous tissues or homogeneous material if you want to get a clear picture. From the result point of view, I showed you that the mRNA levels of the dopaminergic maintenance genes, so Nur and PIDX3, and also the associated microRNA are unchanged. And um, the reason behind here is I guess these are more involved in the development of dopaminergic neurons and so they should not be altered because otherwise I would um, guess that you have Parkinson's disease from the very beginning after your birth, which is not the case. Then I showed you that the the mRNA levels of the dopaminergic marker genes, tyrosine hydroxylase, um, mobimed and DAT are much higher expressed, significantly higher in Parkinson's disease compared to controls and I assume this is a compensatory effect while the ion channels of the Um, activity reducing genes, in contrast, are also higher expressed, so protecting the cells also um, from hyper excitability. And for the PARC genes, I simply um, showed you that alpha-synuclein is higher expressed in Parkinson's disease, what was expected, um, while LARC2 is unchanged, what was also expected from the um, molecular biology behind. As a conclusion, we found an orchestrated transcriptional dysregulation in Parkinson's disease and this might provide a starting point for early diagnosis or maybe also contains an opportunity for neuroprotective approaches, especially the KATP channel which is the, um, yeah, uh, the one my old professor uh, dislikes a lot. And to conclude, I would just like to um, put your eyes on the uh, publication which is now um, out there in the Neurobiology of Aging. It was published last year, so you can see my Ph.D. thesis was finished in 2010, and it can take still a long time to get this published in a scientific journal. So to all the Ph.D. students out there listening here, yeah, keep going. <laughs> it is worth it. And uh, the protocol or the main protocol is published here in the methods in molecular biology and here you can really find everything on the methods and how to, to prepare your samples and to get um, valid results and for the microRNAs you should take a look into the neurobiology of aging. The others um, are simply, let's say, more or less side effects, so nature genetics, yeah, very nice, simply because I had access um, to the l system, to the NACA l at the lab, and I was able to use it for corporations which were very, very fruitful because I was really able to help many people here to get um, much better and homogeneous and pure starting material for their experiments. So many thanks for listening. This was from my side. And I guess I will hand over again um, to start and open the discussion. Many thanks.
1: Thanks, Raphael and Falk. That was an excellent presentation. We have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So our first question is from Elizabeth. Is She asks, is it possible to obtain high-quality RNA by laser microdissection from paraffin-embedded PFA-fixed sections to perform qPCR experiments?
3: Okay, this so is... Yeah, so I can start. So let's say for paraffin embedded sections, the main problem is that the paraffin is already starting to degrade the RNA. So you will not get better quality after the LMD procedure, but you can um, sustain the quality you have from the beginning. So if your quality of your tissue with the paraffin is okay at the very beginning, and you um, you can find many protocols in our citation list, you can sustain this quality, so after the, the whole process, mounting your section, stain it and fix it on the slide, applying laser micro dissection, you will have the sections of the dissectates, uh, the desired regions in the cap of your tube and these will have the same quality as the starting material if you use a proper protocol.
2: And the- if I can add something, uh, it is also important not to use a formalin, uh, paraformaldehyde to fix uh, the material, since uh, generally for in situ hybridization, for example, paraformaldehyde is used in combination with paraffin embedding, but it is not possible for laser microdissection. Okay. That's Please a valid pa-
3: pa- point. So you need to you need to deparaffinize before you apply the laser. Otherwise um, you will not be able to cut your sections. Mm-hmm. That's true. Thank you, Rafaela.
1: Okay. And then I guess to follow up on that, I have a question from Ginny asking, are the RNA level analyses verified topographically? Say by immunostating of known or existing expression genes in the similar tissues, in the same or similar tissues?
3: So if this question walks um, to my topic, I did not did um, any situ hybridizations. What we have done is we simply took the human brain atlas, as well as the mouse brain atlas, to um, get an idea of which uh, genes um, seem to be in because these um, atlas have been designed after incital hybridization. But you can see from the Ellen um, Brain Institute, which are providing these um, atlas for the human brain and the murine brain, they are doing the insightal first and afterwards they use laser microdissection and the Leica LMD they have there to verify the results from the incyto. But I have not done this for my results. I was um, only working in using laser microdissection on the single cell level with qPCR. And um of course we have established these protocols on urine samples where we have validated that we will only get um really elev- dopaminergic neurons after laser microdissection and not any cross contaminations.
1: Okay. And um Omar um, wants to know if, in addition to cell isolation, if laser microdissection is suitable to find the protein partners of a specific protein. So if you could dissect the specific organized organelles or total cytoplasm only or mid-body or et cetera, if you could dissect, I guess, further down into the cell.
3: Yeah, so- I would say this is possible um but you need enough material so the fallback with proteins is that you have no PCR reaction behind that means you need to collect more material that you have enough to put it in the protein analysis machines which can be mass uh, mass spec or whatever
2: Oh yes or uh, to de or to dimension de- uh, is possible also to do this to combine a laser microdissection and 2 dimension uh, protein analysis in gel.
1: Okay. Um, And so then I have a question from Lei asking if there's an optimum number of captures required to obtain enough RNA from one slide for downstream gene expression analysis by QRT-PCR.
3: So I have worked on the individual cell level, so that means one cell is for sure enough. And if you okay. want to go further down to, I don't know, to only parts of the cell, it mm-hmm. um, depends uh, on the assay and on the on the structure of the DNA or um, in this case RNA you're interested in. So if you have um, DC, DC, DNA behind and a lot of um, secondary um, structure in the RNA, it might be challenging to find a good performing assay for it, but in general, when you start, let's say, with, with one molecule and you have a strong assay, this might be enough, and this is something you can easily test if you have, for example, a standard RNA, which you can simply okay. dilute in, um, as far as you can go down, and then test your assay, and then you can estimate how many RNA strands should be inside, and then simply test and try if your assay is powerful enough to detect one RNA, or if it needs 10, and so on.
2: For example for my material it is not possible to start uh, with uh, one cell uh, since uh, the number of cells uh, is also depending on the factor if uh, the ma- on the tissue if the tissues are uh, very active tissues uh, it is possible to use less cells than uh, from a different city, the region. For example, in my case, of the roots, uh, where the, the cytoplasm is only limited to the border of the cell, and so is uh, difficult to obtain uh, cell, many RNA in RNA enough for the further analysis.
1: Okay, and then I have a another. I have a question from uh, Roldan asking which is be- which one is better for laser microdissection of animal tissues, paraffin or cryo embedded? So is it better to paraffin say, or yeah, that's, um, yeah. cryo? embedded? cryo,
3: of the... course cryo, because cryo leaves the the material untouched, and paraffin can already alter the quality.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So whenever you have the chance to go for cryo, go for cryo.
1: Okay. And then along the same lines, Eric asks if there are recommended or preferable RNA amplification protocols or kits to use for RNA-seq from laser microdissected materials.
3: So I've never done RNA-seq, okay. but I know that there's a very nice paper um, which is also published in Jobs, the Journal of Visualized Experiments, and they really describe how to do um, uh, so the whole upstream protocol with um, laser market dissection for RNA-seq and you can find it also on the Science Lab link which was already in the chat mm-hmm. at the beginning. It's um, y- You will find it there.
2: Okay. Yes, it, it is possible and in uh, my presentation I have uh, uh, put uh, uh, one uh, paper in which uh, they do this.
1: Okay, and to let everybody know um, the last link that you received not in your easy,
2: chat. It's not easy, and uh, it is important to amplify the RNA. It's not possible to use the, the RNA after the extraction, but it's important to set up a protocol to amplify mm-hmm. the RNA. Okay.
1: And to let everybody in the audience know, the last link that you received in the chat box is to the Leica Science Lab and that will give you um, links to talking about RNA-Seq and the applications for the answer to this question. And then I have a few more questions. Um, one is from uh, Leonard asking, what is the sharpest spatial resolution one can receive or one can achieve with laser microdissection? And is that resolution limited by the imager or the cutter? So. What limits the resolution
3: with that? So if I got the question right, um, mm-hmm. so the highest objective we can use is the 150X dry objective okay. um, in combination with a frame slide. Mm-hmm. And here the cutting edge or the cutting width of the um, laser beam can be below 0.4 microns, depending on the on material mm-hmm. and yeah. on the settings you have here, here, the treatment. I
1: hope this is sufficient. Yes, that seems about right. That's rather really impressive. And then the last one question that I have is: Does this process affect cell dynamism or breaking of DNA or hazardous effect on any component of the cell?
2: Could you repeat? That? I oh. I don't hear. I don't listen the.
1: To... Okay. The question is, does this process affect um, cell dynamics or breaking of the DNA or does it have any other hazardous effects on any component of the cell?
3: Um, So let me answer it in in two ways. So the laser microdissection is to cut usually around the area of interest which you want to analyze and so the laser remains the area of interest completely untouched and then there is no effect at all. You can also okay. do market dissection on, on live cells and collect these live cells and let them regrow. We have also many publications on this, how to do that even on the single cell level. So even if you dissect a single living cell you can um, make a clone out of it. But of course, if you apply the laser directly to the cells of interest or to the direct, uh, directly to the area of interest or the cells of interest, you can of course destroy or damage the DNA or RNA content.
1: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, and then our last question is from uh, Rafia and she er, and Rafia asks, what is the thickness of sections used for microdissection? To whom is this question? So this is to either one of you all. Um, what is the thickness of sections used for micro dissection?
3: So the signals we used for the brains were always m um, 12 microns, but these 12 microns were related to the urine, to the mouse sections we started with. I think for the human sections, it would have been better to use M26 or something, so something which is in the range of the diameter of the cells we were looking to. But we simply didn't want to change the protocol, but the laser is powerful enough to dissect even thicker sections up to 30, 40 microns It's usually with both systems, no problem. And we have some users who are dissecting with a single, cut in 10x magnification, even wood sections of um, several hundred microns with a single cut. Yes, but it
2: depends on the material I think.
1: Okay, and that's the last of our questions. So that brings us to the end of the seminar. So thanks again, Raphael and Falk, for a very illuminating presentation and great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsor, Leica. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminar's page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you. So until next time, good luck in your research, and goodbye from all of us at and Microsystems and Bio.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.